Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going pretty well on this Thursday in late January. Um, the Supreme Court is once again out, uh, and they won't be back until late February. And, you know, you and our listeners might be thinking, wait, weren't, didn't they just have like a long December recess? And yes, they did. But this is, you know, the midwinter recess. You got to have more than one winter recess, okay? That's such a nice schedule. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not to mention, this this is, we haven't even gotten to the summer recess yet, which is the three months separating the terms. Um, In any event, the justices have kind of been out and about, um, in addition to their regular court work. uh, Justice Elena Kagan, over the weekend, uh, helped christen a new Navy vessel in San Diego. Yeah, that's right. She christened a new fleet oiler named after the former Chief Justice Earl Warren. Um, I have to say, I didn't realize how like messy it could be to christen a boat. Like, I saw some pictures of this, and you, you know how you like see the the baseball players after the World Series all like covered in champagne. Like, Kagan was kind of like that as well. Like, it, I don't know if she was holding the bottle wrong or something, but it, it did seem like she she got christened as well as the boat. <laughs> Are you questioning Kagan's champagne smashing skills? I I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just wondering if you're supposed to go at it at an angle so it doesn't go straight up at you. <laughs> you know, you might be right about that. There is a great photo attached to the to the write up in the uh, Times of San Diego where yes, she is getting doused, a la you know uh, one of the celebrating players of whoever won the World Series. Um, but that just you know that's part of her name. That's like. That's what I think of when I think of Justice Kagan. You know, some, a justice who's just ready for adventure. I, I, one of my favorite anecdotes is how shortly after she joined the Supreme Court, she uh, kind of approached Justice Antonin Scalia to see if she could go hunting with him. So there's no, you know, there's she's definitely willing to 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 shed the robe and get out there and and, and see the world. And I love that. Um, so yes, we are on. Our February recess, hence why we're talking about boat christenings. But there was still some news from the Supreme Court this week. That's right. We finally got opinions. Finally, indeed. This is something we've been talking about on past episodes. Just where are all the opinions? And it took a super long time, more than three months. But yes, the first one is finally here. It's a unanimous decision. Um, But before we get into it, I just want to briefly shout out uh, an article on uh, from from Adam Feldman of Empirical SCOTUS. Uh, he's a blogger who looks at a lot of this kind of data stuff when it comes to Supreme Court. And he said that it's the longest time since 1790 that the justices took to release their first opinion. And not only is it the longest time, but no other term has come all that close to 112 days. Um, just kind of looking at that article and at the, the graphs that he charted out, um, past terms that were like closest to the mark, they issued opinions somewhere in the range of like 60 something days after the term started. So I like the, the justices went and like barreled through their record here. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And it, it raises a lot of questions, questions that um, won't be answered on today's podcast about what's happening with the court's productivity and why this is taking so long. But in any event, we did get one single opinion this week in a case called Arellano versus McDonough. 
And this was a decision written by Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Um, like many of the first opinions of terms, this one was unanimous. And basically, the Supreme Court denied 30 years of retroactivity disability benefits to a Navy veteran suffering from mental health disorders found to be the result of his service on an aircraft carrier that collided with another ship. So remind us of the background of this case. What what were the facts at hand? Sure. So Adolfo Arellano was honorably discharged from the Navy in 1981. And 30 years later, he applies for disability benefits with the Department of Veterans Affairs. Now, the default rule in these kind of applications is that the effective date, that is the date where the VA basically says you're going to start receiving benefits from this period onward, um, that's going to be the same day as your application in most cases as the rule of uh, veterans law works. But there are several exceptions that deviate from that rule. And one of them is if you can file your claim within one year of your discharge from the military. So in that case, the VA will make the effective date. It'll bump it up earlier to the day after the discharge. So because Arellano missed that one-year deadline by you know around 30 years, the VA applied its default rule and made the effective date of his benefits the day they received his application in June 2011. Now, Arellano argued on appeal to the VA's Board of Veteran Appeals that the one-year deadline should have been equitably told, a legal term for basically pause when they stop the clock, because his mental illness, he said, prevented him from meeting the deadline. Now, the board and then on appeal to the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, they disagreed. Then he went to the federal circuit, which is, you know, the special uh, uh, federal appellate court. It's like right across the street from the White House, and it has exclusive jurisdiction over these types of appeals. The federal circuit sitting on bonk split six to six on the issue of whether this one-year deadline, you know, uh, about whether you're going to get those retroactivity uh, on your disability benefits, whether that can be told or whether basically that just means that's the end of the matter. And half of the court thought that the one-year deadline could be told, and half the court thought it couldn't be told. That's pretty rare. That's a pretty rare, like, intra-circuit split. What did the justices say? No, it is, yeah, like a lot of cases that come with the Supreme Court are a lot of the different federal circuits disagreeing on this, but because the federal circuit has exclusive jurisdiction over the questions surrounding veterans' law, it's really they really have the last say, and the fact that it was like a six-to-six evenly divided court was really interesting. So, What the Supreme Court said on Monday with Justice Barrett's uh, unanimous decision was that no, uh, this one-year deadline that allows people to start getting benefits the day after their discharge, that's not subject to equitable tolling. In other words, there are no extenuating circumstances that could excuse the failure to meet the deadline. In Arellano's case, that means because he applied for his disability benefits 30 years after the, his discharge, that deadline is long in the past, and he's not going to be entitled to all those retroactive benefits, regardless of what arguments he makes about the fact that his mental illness was the reason that he didn't make the one-year deadline in the first place. So what was Justice Barrett's reasoning here? Yeah, so Barrett acknowledges that equitable tolling or pausing a statute of limitations set by Congress in light of these circumstances she acknowledges that that's a fundamental U.S. principle. In fact, 
She quotes from her own opinion just last term in a case called Boeschler versus Commissioner of the IRS, where she calls it, quote, a traditional feature of American jurisprudence and a background principle against which Congress drafts limitations period. So she's saying, yes, I know, this is very important stuff. But she says the ordinary presumption that this kind of tolling applies is rebutted by the way that Congress wrote this particular statute. That's because their default rule designating the application receipt as the effective date is the default rule, and it only provides deviations from that rule in certain limited circumstances, like when the application is filed within a year of discharge. So she says, yes, equitable tolling usually applies to these kind of federal statute of limitations, but Congress said, look, this is our default rule. It's the effective date is treated as your application date, and there are only limited circumstances when that's not the case. Here's one. That's a case where if we're going to extend equitable tolling to that situation, that's going to disrupt Congress's scheme for how its statute works. That's Barrett's explanation in her decision. Now, this is such a particular set of facts here. How significant is this ruling to kind of like the broader community of veterans? Well, I actually don't know that it is that um, unique of a set of facts. Um, I was reading an interesting amicus brief filed in support of Arellano by a veterans advocacy group called Military Veterans Advocacy. And they say that as of September 2020, like over 5 million veterans were receiving these service-connected disability benefits. 1.2 million of them suffered from post-traumatic stress. That makes it the fourth most common disability and the one that Arellano says caused him to miss his filing deadline. So according to the brief from this advocacy group, they say, quote, given the frequency with which mental health conditions occur in the veteran population, barring equitable tolling adversely affects hundreds, if not thousands of veterans who, because of their injuries, do not recognize even the existence of their disabilities, let alone their right to seek compensation. So what was interesting reading through Barrett's opinion after that was how she seemed to kind of respond to maybe some of the criticism because there's no dissent here, right? This is a unanimous decision, but maybe she's envisioning, you know, she's she's responding to amicus, like the, the, those types of arguments so she says, yes, maybe making this one-year deadline such a hard and fast rule where there's no exceptions, she says that could produce some, quote, harsh results. But she says Congress could have designed a scheme that allowed adjudicators to maximize fairness in every case. And she basically says, but it didn't, and the court should not disrupt that choice. So a pretty interesting first opinion of the term and one that despite the unanimous nature of it could potentially be pretty consequential in in the in the veterans community as you know uh, veterans with service connected disabilities go to the VA to file these applications for retroactive disability benefits especially when you know oftentimes they're representing themselves and they're not like sophisticated law firms um, in a sense. So this kind of uh, complicates things a little bit for them, especially if they ha- suffer from these disabilities. We also got technically, though, a second decision on Monday in a case from this term's docket, though it wasn't an opinion. It was a procurum order. The justices dismissed the attorney-client privilege case they heard just two weeks ago, saying it was improvidently granted. Just a reminder for our listeners, we actually 
did talk about this when it was heard um, over on January 9th. Um, this is the case where the justices were asked to weigh in on whether communications, in this particular case, emails that included both legal and non-legal advice from an attorney are shielded by attorney-client privileges. The justices were weighing a circuit split in how courts analyze these communications um, and how they judge what is deemed you know, to be privileged. Petitioners in particular were asking the justices to solidify a test that's a bit broader than the way the Ninth Circuit um, and the vast majority of courts handle how to decide what is privileged. Now, the one-line order from Monday doesn't give a, any information. <laughs> it's, it just says improvidently granted. Uh, so it's a bit difficult to say exactly why the justices decided uh, th- to say that they'd basically been wrong to take up the case in the first place. This one was so interesting because it was kind of a mystery. And some digs, as these dismissals as improvidently granted are are known, you kind of suspect you like there's a there's a prevailing reason why you think that they dismissed the case for whatever reason. Um, but in this case, you kind of had to look into the facts of the case and look into the oral arguments to tell. And I'm not even sure that the answer is so clear after having done that. So what's your best guess? on why the court digged, or I guess dug, this case, (laughs) especially when I know the reaction from the legal community was one of frustration that the court didn't clarify the proper test to use about whether dual-purpose communications are covered by attorney-client privilege. I get so confused every time you use dugged in that context because I think of it as like liking a case. And in this in this context, they did not like this case to to, to move forward. Um, but no, you're exactly right. So looking back at the arguments, um, I will say some of the justices, including Justices Kagan and Sotomayor, seemed to push back on the premise that the court needed to step in here. For a long time, many courts, most courts use this one particular test um, and some of the justices, including Justices Kagan and Sotomayor, seemed to push back on the premise that the court needed to step in here. A lot of courts, frankly, most courts use this primary purpose test that we talked about, and that seems to be like the prevailing way of looking at whether something should be privileged or not. The idea that it's only privileged if the legal advice was the primary purpose of the communications, whereas yes. right the as other test was to, as opposed to a significant purpose, which is the test that the unnamed law firm in this case resisting the subpoena wanted to embrace. Exactly. So during oral arguments, looking back at the transcript, Justice Kagan was like alluding to uh, what Justice Sotomayor was saying before. There's no particular evidence of confusion. There's no particular evidence of chill. And she was referring to like chilling the speech of attorneys. Like this isn't an issue that's like jumped up a lot of times, basically, she's saying. And she went on to say, quote, so this is a big ask. And it's an ask that's not particularly consistent with the underlying nature of what the attorney-client privilege is supposed to be protecting, unquote. So she was, again, referring also to the concern that if the justices went with the way the petitioner was asking them to go on the other test, that it could basically make the attorney-client privilege too broad um, and basically protect a lot of communications that wouldn't normally be kind of caught up in that net right now. You know what was I, so I went back and I I was looking through the transcript of this one because I was so confused as to why they got rid of this because it, you're right that and we talked about this offline but there is 
a split on 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 the question about the scope of attorney client privilege in these dual purpose communications between the DC circuit and all these other courts and so I was kind of like struggling to understand why they got rid of this case and it was interesting that the the test that the attorney for uh, the law firm wanted to use you know describing it as significant purpose it doesn't have to be the primary purpose it just has to be a significant purpose um, and yet in elaborating on what constitutes a significant purpose, he said, oh, it just has to be like bona fide legal advice, like good faith legal advice. And listening to not just Kagan or Sotomayor, but all the other justices, they were like, well, that seems very broad. Like, <laughs> it doesn't matter how important it has to relate to the actual communications. It just has to yeah. be like legitimate legal advice and not frivolous or something like that. So yeah. it seemed like there were a number of reasons why the justices were kind of concerned with this case as the right yeah. vehicle. Even Justice Jackson, I, I believe it was Justice Jackson who seemed kind of to see some of the points being made here. It was then also voiced concerns that, well, if you're asking us to take this other test, it, it feels like we might be jumping from one extreme to the other and not quite. So we don't know exactly why they chose to not take this case up further and, and, and make an, a, you know, a, a final decision. But it does feel like maybe they felt like it's not ripe enough yet. For them to be to be weighing in here or that there's not as like big of an like broader issue for them to be having to step in and say this is the test you have to have going forward. I will say a lot of the attorneys, though, who have been watching this case, this case did attract several Amici briefs from people in the legal industry, um, told one of our reporters, Kat Lucero, that this decision essentially means that how communications are analyzed are going to vary depending on where you are in the country, um, and that this creates some significant uncertainty for businesses and law firms, which is never a good thing. Yeah, lawyers definitely do not like uncertainty, <laughs> especially when it comes to whether their communications are going to be <laughs> having to be... Uh, you know, produced in the course of a subpoena. But yeah, I, I, can I just say one last thing on this case? So I was reading yes. um, the case and I, it was, I was reading the brief in opposition from the government. It was really interesting to hear about like why in the government's view the, the test was this primary purpose test. Because you would think like, you know, why won't, why wouldn't they sweep broader in the course of like, let's say in the, in the case here where it was a tax case. It was a uh, grand jury investigation into... Um, potential tax crimes. And uh, the government made the argument that like, look, they want to clearly delineate unprotected tax advice from protected legal advice. And the idea being that if tax advice, if ordinary tax advice, or if you sweep too broadly and let a lawyer basically privilege their communications with the client over their tax advice and non-legal advice, then that basically gives the legal world a huge competitive advantage over their non-lawyer counterparts in the world of tax preparation because obviously all of their communications would be shielded from government, from grand juries and prosecutors, et cetera, et cetera. So that was one really interesting note um, on that one. And Yeah, uh, basically anyone who could afford to have a lawyer sit in on their communications in, in some form or another might get their tax forms and tax communications privileged. Which I'm sure they the, the legal community would not hate if they had that kind of sweeping power. <clears throat> so yeah, that was an interesting one. And I think we 
I don't know that we cracked the case, but I think we have a maybe a better idea of uh, uh, why they got rid of this one. So let's um, look back bef- like 30 minutes before the decisions on Monday at, came down at 10 a.m. At 9.30, um, the court handed down its, sla- its orders list from the conference the previous week. So there were no cert grants. Obviously, this term this term's docket is pretty much full up. So there's not a whole lot of room left for cases. So they're really in no hurry to like add new cases. And with that, that includes a set of closely watched petitions involving challenges to new social media laws passed by Texas and Florida that aim to restrict social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook from censoring certain speech. So what the court did on Monday was it called for the views of the Solicitor General, which basically means it invited the Biden administration and um, the SG to file briefs in the Florida and Texas cases. And what that does is it effectively ensures that these cases are not going to be heard before the fall term at the earliest. But it does signal their interest in the case. I was about to say, though, like asking the Solicitor General's view does seem to send the, the message that they're thinking about this one pretty so- seriously. The thing is, like, I think we already knew the justices were going to be interested in this one, so it doesn't tell me that much in terms of their interest. Like, there is a circuit split on this, and I think it's highly likely. I I don't want to say inevitable because, you know, the court has a discretionary docket and it doesn't take up what it doesn't want to take up. But um, I think it's highly likely that even before this, they were really interested in the case. I think what this is going to be interesting is to see what the Biden administration says, because I don't believe, unless I'm mistaken, that the the Biden administration, the Biden Department of Justice has weighed in on these laws. I was looking through the dockets of the uh, circuit courts where these appeals came from, and I did not see a brief from the federal government. So it will be interesting to hear what they say, especially as, you know, Tech immunity, tech liability, big tech is uh, the latest big topic at the Supreme Court. That's right. Actually, coming up, they're going to be hearing um, the next big case of involving Google and Twitter and Section 230 immunity, right? Yeah, this one is definitely one that uh, the tech world, Silicon Valley, um, is going to be paying close attention to whether um, internet communities enjoy Internet communities, internet companies enjoy absolute immunity from suit under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, as has basically been the case for like you know decades now. But um, it's it's probably going to shape up to be a pretty big term for big tech. And if the court takes this one up, you know, wading into these novel First Amendment questions about what kind of state or government regulations can be imposed on these social media platforms when it comes to their content moderation policies. I mean, that's going to be a really big deal. Uh, We do know that Alito said that there were some significant questions um, being raised in these cases, and he dissented when the Supreme Court effectively blocked Texas's law in this case. So it'll be interesting to see how, you know, this is one, it's going to be off in the distance a little bit, um, potentially not taken up until you know, if at all, obviously, the court always reserves the right to, to uh, like, you know, dismiss things as they see fit, as we saw with the grand jury case. But I suspect we'll get an update on this um, before summer recess as to whether the court is going to take up these social media law cases for the fall term. 
Jimmy, I think that just about wraps us up for this week. Uh, thanks so much, as always. Thank you, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you liked this episode, please leave a review. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader, Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Additional reporting by Kat Lucero and Dan Wilson. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term.